This is episode 9 of The Hate Crime Files, a podcast about crimes typically involving violence, motivated by prejudice based on race, religion, sexual orientation, gender, gender identity, or other grounds. I'm your host, Terrence Heath. This podcast covers disturbing events and may not be suitable for everyone. It is not recommended for children under 13. Listener discretion is advised. Since I began researching cases for this podcast, I've been struck by what has been called an epidemic of violence against transgender women, especially transgender women of color. According to a report released by the Human Rights Campaign in 2018, activists recorded the deaths of at least 128 transgender people who were victims of fatal violence. Nine in every ten of the victims, at least 115, were transgender women. At least 110 of them were people of color, including 95 African Americans and 14 Latinx individuals. At least 103 victims, 80%, were transgender women of color. African American trans women made up 69% of the victims. But the actual numbers are probably worse than this and remain unknown because of incomplete or unreliable data collection when it comes to violence against transgender people. Some deaths may go unreported. Other victims may be misgendered in the media because officials, journalists, or family members refuse to recognize their gender identity. Acquaintances, partners, and strangers killed most of these victims. Some have been arrested and charged while others remain unidentified. Some cases involve clear anti-transgender bias. In some cases, like the one covered in this episode, the victim's transgender status put them at risk in other ways, such as forcing them into poverty, homelessness, or survival sex work. In just about every aspect of society, transgender people face discriminatory barriers that deprive them of the right to full and equal participation in society. Educational environments are often unwelcoming and even hostile to transgender and non-conforming youth. Too few policies protect transgender students. As a result, many may experience discrimination and mistreatment from both students and staff. 84% of transgender youth say they don't always feel safe in school. They may miss significant amounts of school and some may even drop out altogether. In 2017, the Trump-Pence administration withdrew guidance issued by the Obama administration clarifying schools' obligations to protect transgender students under federal law, including policies regarding sex-segregated facilities in public schools. Transgender people face overwhelming levels of discrimination and harassment in the workplace. 30% of transgender employees report having been fired, denied a promotion, 
or experiencing other forms of mistreatment in the workplace because of their gender identity or expression. The result is that the unemployment rate among transgender people is three times higher than that of the general population. The problem is even worse for black transgender people. Their unemployment rate is double that of all transgender people and four times that of the general U.S. population. Denial of opportunity puts many in harm's way by leaving them vulnerable to poverty and homelessness and causing some to resort to sex work as a means of survival. That was the situation facing 43-year-old Duana Johnson, an African-American transgender woman living in Memphis, Tennessee, in 2008. She struggled with poverty, unemployment, and crack addiction as well as several arrests for prostitution. In a sense, Memphis was home to Johnson. She spent her childhood in the city until about the age of 12, when her family moved, primarily settling in Wisconsin and the Chicago area. She'd come back to Memphis just a year and a half earlier and was living alone in a tiny red brick house with no utilities in a low-income neighborhood blighted with boarded-up buildings and untended lots. Unemployed, she made her living walking the streets, flagging down motorists, offering sex for sale. Johnson had led a troubled life. From 1985 to 1992, she was in and out of prison on battery and theft convictions. In 2000, Johnson drew a three-year prison sentence in New York for attempted robbery. She had parole violations in both states. On February 12, 2008, Johnson was arrested on a charge of prostitution, which was later dropped. Johnson had been seen walking near Claybrook and Madison in Memphis. She said that she believed the officer arrested her for merely being transgender in an area known to be frequented by transgender sex workers. Johnson's lawyer said that the required elements for a prostitution arrest, a John, and exchange of sex for money were absent in Johnson's arrest. Johnson was booked at the Shelby County Criminal Justice Center in Memphis. While Johnson was waiting to be fingerprinted, she was beaten by an officer while another held her down. She was maced when she refused to comply with an officer's orders after the officer insulted her. Johnson said that the officer, Bridges McCray, called her over to be fingerprinted, but she chose not to respond to the derogatory name he called her. Quote, Actually, he was trying to get me to come over to where he was, and I responded by telling him that my name, that my mother didn't name me a faggot or a he-she, so he got upset and approached me, and that's when it started, Johnson said. The officer said, I'm giving you one more chance to get up, and then began putting on gloves and wrapping a pair of handcuffs around his knuckles. In an 18-minute video leaked from the Shelby County Criminal Justice Center, 
Officer McRae is seen to approach a seated Johnson and repeatedly punch her in the face with the handcuffs wrapped around his knuckles. The flash of metal can be seen in the video. Another officer, rookie James Swain, came over and held Johnson's shoulders as she tried to ward off McRae's blows. After taking several blows, Johnson stood up and swung back, but she sat back down and Officer McRae maced her. The other people in the room turned away and fanned their faces. McRae hit Johnson in the face again. On the video, Johnson is handcuffed and left on the floor. The nurse who arrived on the scene went immediately to Officer McRae. Johnson said no one checked on her or came to see that she was okay. I was afraid. I had had enough. Like I said, I thought the other officers that were witnessing this would at least try to stop him, Johnson said. I mean, he hit me so hard. Like the third time he hit me, it split my skull and I had blood coming out. So I jumped up, Johnson said. But then she sat back down and the officer hit her in the face again and then he maced her. On the tape, other people in the room are seen turning away from the spray. The Shelby County Sheriff's Department reported that the nurse employed by the department was called to assess the situation. The nurse noted that Johnson had been sprayed with mace and asked if she was okay. She determined Johnson was not in an emergency situation and left to make arrangements for the Memphis Police Department to transport Johnson for medical treatment. The nurse later returned to provide Officer McRae with treatment for a cut. Johnson filed a complaint against the Memphis Police Department in March 2008 related to the beating she received from Officer McRae. However, it was not Johnson's complaint that brought to light the video and the events it depicted. Officer McRae filed an internal complaint against the detective who was in the booking area for not helping him. It was McRae's complaint that caused the video to be reviewed by the district attorney and the FBI and to finally become public. The following morning, the Memphis Police Department issued this statement. The Memphis Police Department does not condone any misconduct of an officer that will compromise official law enforcement duties or the rights or safety of our citizens. As it relates to the February incident that occurred at the jail facility, the police department has been conducting a thorough internal investigation. The details surrounding the complainant, witnesses, and law enforcement officials' statements are part of an ongoing investigation and cannot be released at this time. As a standard departmental policy, a full, impartial hearing will be held with the accused officer. Memphis Police can confirm the work status of the two primary officers involved in this complaint. Officer Jay Swain was a probationary officer and has been separated from the Memphis Police Department. Officer B. McRae has been placed on non-enforcement status pending an administrative hearing. Memphis Police 
can also confirm the Federal Bureau of Investigation has been notified and requested to look into the complaint further. Regards, Detective Monique Y. Martin, Memphis Police Department, Office of Public Information and Media Relations. Memphis Mayor Willie Harrington said in an interview that the beating was, quote, horrible and disgusting. It shouldn't be tolerated, and all the parties involved should receive appropriate punishment, Harrington said. Officer Swain was immediately fired after the beating, and McCray was assigned to desk duty pending a hearing to determine his fate. He was eventually fired as well. Memphis Police Director Larry Goodwin got the FBI involved after viewing the video. Goodwin did not know how the video was leaked. The footage was leaked by Johnson's attorney, Murray Wells, who was outraged that McRae was not immediately fired and no disciplinary actions were forthcoming. Johnson announced that she would file suit against the Memphis Police Department for violating her civil rights. On June 18, 2008, Johnson's lawyer gave the city an offer to settle the case for $1.3 million. On June 26, about 40 people gathered at the First Congregational Church to discuss the beating Johnson received from police. After the leaked video of Johnson's beating was broadcast, another local family came forward with claims of a violent run-in with Officer McRae. According to a federal lawsuit on December 19, 2005, truck driver Kirby Lloyd parked his tractor-trailer in his mother's backyard. Lloyd started his other car and went inside to greet his mother. The lawsuit says Lloyd was accosted by two Memphis police officers, including McRae, when he went outside, slammed onto the driveway with excessive force, and arrested for a fictitious offense. Lloyd sued for $300,000 in compensation for medical bills and lost wages. His sister, Kim Merrill, was also arrested that night and filed suit for $300,000. Both cases were dismissed and later repealed. On July 28th, Johnson was arrested on charges of prostitution near a church or school and possession of drug paraphernalia. According to police reports, Johnson flagged down an undercover officer and got into his car and said, I have some place to go. I have a three-bedroom on Dexter. When the officer asked, what does it all cost? Johnson replied, for everything, $30 and a beer. The officer's report said that Johnson had condoms and a crack pipe in a purse. Johnson's attorney, Arthur Horn, entered a not guilty plea for his client at arraignment. Horn added that the charges did not change what had happened to Johnson earlier. I think you can see from what has happened in the past that she is definitely a public figure now and people know who she is, Horn said. They're going to be watching her every move, and we expected that. Johnson was scheduled to return to court in August 2008.
At the time of her arrest, the utilities at Johnson's small North Memphis home had been cut off for several months. She needed to pay at least $2,400 to get them turned back on. She paid neighbors $20 a month to plug an extension cord in their home and run it over to hers. She depended on the kindness of others for a place to sleep and wash because she had no running water. On November 9th, Johnson was found dead. She had been shot in the head on a street corner just a few blocks from her home. A news article cited a witness who said that three men, described as possibly young, were at the spot where Johnson's body was found. They left immediately after a gunshot went off. Johnson was killed just hours before she was supposed to get on a bus to return to Kenosha, Wisconsin. She was going to live with her mother, Hazel Skinner, in hopes of getting her life back together. She wanted to get her life together, Skinner said. I'd say, Duana, I'm praying and I want you to pray too. We talked about going back to school or working on computers or doing hair. She didn't deserve to be killed, and she didn't deserve to be beaten like they did. No matter what gender she was, she was still a human being, said Skinner. She was God's child. At the time of her death, Johnson was in the process of suing the city of Memphis for $1.3 million. Her attorney announced that Johnson's death would not stop the lawsuit which would fall to Johnson's family. Seventy-five people gathered and marched from the Memphis Gay and Lesbian Community Center at a vigil in her memory on November 16th. I keep encountering people who ask me, how could you mourn her? My only response to that is, how could you not? said Amy Livingston, one of the march organizers. In Duana's memory, we must pursue justice. We cannot let this go unresolved. The Tennessee Transgender Political Coalition issued a special appeal on behalf of the family of Dewana Johnson to help them cover funeral expenses. On November 19th, Officer McCray was indicted on civil rights charges in the jailhouse beating of Johnson. He was charged with violating Johnson's civil rights while in a position of authority, which carried a maximum penalty of 10 years in prison and a $250,000 fine. McRae pleaded not guilty. On August 26, 2010, McRae pleaded guilty in federal court to a federal civil rights charge relating to the use of excessive force. He admitted that he used unreasonable force against Johnson when she was in his custody. McRae acknowledged that his conduct violated federal law, that he violated Johnson's civil rights, and that his attack caused bodily injury to Johnson in the form of cuts, bruises, and pain. McRae also pleaded guilty to tax evasion, admitting that he evaded federal taxes from 2004 to 2008 by claiming 99 dependents on his W-4 form, 
the city did not withhold any federal taxes from his paycheck, and McRae intentionally did not file a tax return. Every American is guaranteed the right to fair treatment by the police, said Edward L. Stanton, United States Attorney for the Western District of Tennessee. When a rogue police officer abuses the trust placed in him by the community and assaults a person in his custody, we will aggressively prosecute the case to vindicate that right. In May of 2011, McRae was sentenced to two years in prison and two years supervised release per a plea agreement. Johnson was perhaps the most high-profile transgender murder victim in Memphis in 2008, but she wasn't the only one. Ebony Whitaker, a 20-year-old African-American transgender woman, was murdered by an unknown assailant in Memphis and was found dead on July 1, 2008. Detectives said Whitaker was last seen walking in the area of Lamar and Old Getwell in Memphis around 4 a.m. on July 1st. Whitaker's friends said she'd earned money doing sex work since the age of 16. She had at least one arrest for prostitution on her record. Whitaker's body was found by a daycare worker just after 7.15 a.m. near a daycare center and abandoned apartment complex and a strip club in the 3200 block of Whitebrook Plaza in southeast Memphis. Detectives were back in the neighborhood several hours later questioning people at the nearby strip club and clearing the area. Resident Eugene Royal claimed to have heard a gunshot early in the morning. People who worked nearby said the area was a familiar spot for sex workers. Members of Whitaker's family said they suspected Whitaker was killed by a customer who became angry and violent upon learning that she was transgender. As of July 4, 2008, police had no one in custody for Whitaker's murder. Whitaker's funeral was held on July 7, 2008. Following Whitaker's murder, a judge ordered four motels in the area where her body was discovered closed following an undercover police investigation. Memphis Police Director Larry Goodwin made the announcement calling the area the most active prostitution location in the city. Goodwin said police had been called to the four hotels hundreds of times and said that Whitaker's murder was related to the sex trade around the hotels. On December 23, 2008, Lanisha Edwards, an African-American transgender woman, was shot in the face, side, and back as she was getting out of her car. The attack left her in critical condition at The Med, a teaching hospital in Memphis, and facing multiple surgeries. Memphis police said the shooting happened around 
5.30 a.m. in the 3100 block of Boxtown Road in South Memphis, Fuller State Park. Edward was last seen about an hour earlier at the CK's Coffee Shop on Union Avenue in Midtown Memphis. Edward's friends and family said that she was a sex worker and believed she was a victim of a hate crime. Police say there were no eyewitnesses in the shooting when they arrived, and they didn't have a description of the shooter or the shooter's car. Tiffany Berry, a 21-year-old African-American transgender woman, was shot and killed by DeAndre Blake in Memphis, Tennessee, on February 16, 2006, two years before the murders of Johnson and Whitaker and the attempted murder of Edwards. Barry lived at the Camelot Manor Apartments in South Memphis. Her friends say that she stepped outside for some fresh air on February 16th. About that time, neighbors heard five gunshots. Minutes later, Barry stumbled into the lobby of the apartment building where she died moments later. She had been shot three times in the chest. Investigators initially said the incident was a robbery gone wrong, but Barry's friends believed it was a hate crime because she still had her purse as well as the items in it. DeAndre Blake, 20, was arrested and charged with second-degree murder in Barry's death. Blake was released on just $20,000 bond. Though people accused of murder in Tennessee typically get a $100,000 bond. He was scheduled to go on trial for Barry's death in December of 2007, but that trial was postponed indefinitely. According to Blake's family, Blake admitted that he had killed Barry because he did not like the way, quote, it had touched him. Let that sink in for a minute. It. It. A thing. Non-human. Disposable. And expendable. Barry's mother, Deandra Swift, said she was told that Blake had tried to rob Barry to buy diapers for his infant daughter. On July 28th, 2008, at about 6.41 p.m., police received a call about a child in distress at 1264 Turkey Run. When they arrived, they learned that the child, two-year-old Dreona Blake, had been taken to Le Bonheur's Children's Medical Center. She was pronounced dead on arrival. Blake told emergency crews at the site that the child had started choking after eating a bologna sandwich, but officers at the hospital reported that she appeared to have suffered blunt force trauma. Her body was covered with multiple wounds and bruises. The cause of death was ruled to be blunt force trauma. An investigation revealed Blake had struck his daughter several times while trying to potty train her. Blake was taken into custody and charged with first-degree murder and aggravated child abuse in the death of his two-year-old daughter. On December 22nd, a grand jury indicted Blake for first-degree murder 
in the perpetration of aggravated child abuse. In 2009, a jury convicted Blake of first-degree murder in his daughter's death and sentenced him to life in prison. In following up on research for this episode, I could find no evidence that Blake was ever brought to trial for Barry's murder, despite his arrest and confession. Myself, I've only been to Memphis once. And I left there knowing there was much of the city I hadn't seen. It was 1998 and it must have been August because the city was crowded with people there for the anniversary of Elvis Presley's death. I was there for a conference about HIV AIDS prevention and treatment. It was reasonably easy to tell conference attendees from tourists who were there to celebrate one of Memphis's three notable attractions, Elvis, Barbecue, and the Blues. All three were everywhere. You weren't out of the airport before you encountered all three in some form. And they were still there when you left so that you could take them home with you. You could, I was even amazed to find out, order your barbecue at the airport and have it FedExed home. Downtown, Elvis images and impersonators were in abundance. You could stand in the street and become intoxicated by the scent of barbecue and the sound of the blues. The hotel I stayed in struck me as particularly strange. I stayed at the Peabody Hotel on Union Avenue. As the lyric goes, saw the ghost of Elvis down on Union Avenue. Almost as soon as I arrived, I heard about the ducks. The tradition of the marching ducks began in 1933, when hotel manager Frank Shutt returned empty-handed from a hunting trip to Arkansas. Two friends of his played a prank and placed their live duck decoys, three English ducks, in the fountain at the hotel's grand lobby. Following an enthusiastic reaction from hotel guests, five North American mallard ducks soon replaced the original ducks. In 1940, Bellman Edward Pembroke, a former circus animal trainer, offered to help with delivering the ducks to the fountain each day. He taught them the famous Peabody Duck March and became Duck Master, a position he held until his retirement in 1991. I witnessed the Duck March and couldn't help thinking about the people and communities who were the focus of the conference I attended. I watched the ducks waddle down the red carpet amid the popping of flashbulbs and the murmurs of tourists. I saw the ducks and I walked the streets of Memphis around my hotel, but I never saw the people who walked in a very different Memphis, nor did I walk in their shoes. Within ten years of my only visit to the city, at least three African-American transgender women were victims of hate crimes, with two of them losing their lives all within two years. The Hate Crimes Files podcast is researched, written, and produced by Terrence Heath. That's me. Thanks for listening. 
And to all my listeners and subscribers, thanks again for your support. I'll be back with another episode on the 15th of the month. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to support it, please subscribe, tell your friends and family about it, and consider leaving a positive review at iTunes Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next time, be careful out there and be good to each other.